Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Text for this morning, we continue our study of Colossians. Today, chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Well, last week, we walked with Jesus into the small city of Colossae. And there we met a man named Epaphras, who had been an associate of the Apostle Paul and had planted a congregation there in his hometown by by preaching the good news of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his promise coming again to make all things right in this world forever. Epaphras was their founding pastor, and this congregation had started strong, and it was flourishing. But now Ephesus has traveled to Rome to give Paul, who was being held under house arrest for preaching that same gospel, a report on his work at Colossae, and then asked for his assistance with some struggles that he was facing at home. And the letter we're studying, the letter to the Colossians, was Paul's response to Epaphras' visit. Now, Paul had begun his letter with a long prayer, thanking God last week for their faith in Jesus that was clearly visible in their love for one another, that is, in their sacrificial acts of service that was built on the foundation of hope which is the certainty that Jesus will come again and will make the world right permanently. Remember the phrases, faith in Jesus, active in love, built on hope. Now, although Paul never announces the concern that Epaphras has expressed that actually prompted this letter, by reading through it, you get the sense that there was a subtle attitude of complacency that had settled in. And complacency is a nagging nuisance to this day in our walk with Jesus. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus speaks directly to seven congregations. And to one, he says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And to another, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And to the church at Laodicea, which if you look was just up the road a bit from Colossae, Jesus had said, I know your works and you are neither cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, to counter complacency, Paul switches this morning for thanking God for what he has done, namely creating, sustaining our faith, which is always active in love, which is built on hope, to asking God to make it come alive in us again and again, to keep it fresh, to keep it new, to keep it growing. So, what I want to do this morning is look at the why the what and the how of combating complacency in our walk with Jesus. The why, the what, and the how of combating complacency in our walk with Jesus. So first of all, the why. The results of a recent Gallup poll that appeared in my inbox this week bears the headline, 
Record high, 50% of Americans rate U.S. moral values as poor. The summary reads, 50% say the state of moral values is poor, 37% say only fair, and 78% think moral values in the U.S. are getting worse. And, quote, consideration of others, end quote, was cited as the top problem with the state of our moral values. In other words, people feel like it's worse than it's ever been, that it's getting worse, and it is most evident in the way that we treat one another. Now, I suspect that the temptation for us this morning is to cluck our tongues and nod our heads at such news without owning that the problem is not just out there, but that it is also in here. As G.K. Chesterton put it in the last century when asked to write an essay for the London Times on what's wrong with the world, his two-word response brings it directly home. I am. If we are going to claim that we are a nation founded upon Christian moral principles and a vast majority, 78%, think that our moral values are getting worse, then might the problem actually be that you and I often fail to live out our faith active in love, built on hope consistently. Look, I cannot, as an individual, affect world peace. I can't fix our economy. I can't heal the wounds of slavery this Juneteenth. But I can confront my own complacency. And we can, as a congregation, commit ourselves to strive for the values that being in Christ produces in our lives. And if a whole congregation dedicated itself to that, it could impact a whole community, and then a region, and then a state, and then a nation, and then the world. The only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So why commit ourselves to it? Look at what has been done for you. You are qualified to share in the new heaven and the new earth that will be established when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. This is the hope that drives us, the certainty that what we see now is not all there is to this life, that God will put the world right again. Look, you have been delivered even now from the domain of darkness. What's that? That's the broken mess of a world that is crumbling and collapsing all around us. 
And you have been transferred to the kingdom of the Son. That's the world put right. And I will keep telling you, right with God, right with one another, right with the creation, right now through faith in Jesus. All of this is God's work in you. Qualified, delivered, transferred. So that you have redemption. And that word simply means to buy back. And it was the word that was used in the ancient world when a slave was, was purchased and then set free from slavery. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the power of the devil. Jesus paid the price to set us free and we now have the forgiveness of our sins. Now I don't need to re-preach last Sunday's sermon. Faith active in love based on hope but I am reminded of an old preacher's joke I heard in my early years of ministry about the young preacher fresh out of seminary who preached the same sermon four weeks in a row and when questioned by the elders replied well you haven't done any of the things I preached in this sermon so why should I go any further Combating complacency begins first by remembering why we can fight against it. Because God has already done everything necessary to give us a new life that starts even now by faith in Jesus and will never end. So what then does that look like in real time, in your life, and in mine. If I could dissect a faithful follower of Jesus and examine their heart, lay it open, lay open that biblical center of our existence, the heart where our feelings, our intellects, and our own physical bodies all meet. If I could just cut it open and look at it, this is what I would find. The knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, knowledge in the Bible, people, I have told you before, is not simply knowing data or facts. It's not reciting Luther's small catechism. It is not passing a test on Bible history and Christian doctrine. Knowledge in the Bible is a deep, personal, intimate, experiential relationship. And so I would like it if every time you hear that word knowledge or the verb to know that you would go back to the very beginning and you would read that God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them, and Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Now I am not trying to be provocative. I am trying to tell you that the spiritual, intellectual, physical relationship that God built into humanity expressed in a perfect sin-free relationship called marriage is a taste 
of what we were supposed to have with God continuously and without interruption. Diminished by sin, certainly. But look, Paul prays that we would be filled to the brim and overflowing with the knowledge, that deep, personal, intimate, experiential relationship with God and His will. Now, whenever you hear that phrase, God's will, I want you to stop and I want you to repeat 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 which says, God desires, God wants, God wills all people to be saved and come to the knowledge, there's that word again, of the truth. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Because if you think of God's overarching general will to save all people like an umbrella under which everything else God does happens then his specific and personal will for you falls under that umbrella. Now, there are some decisions in your life, like should I buy a Ford or a Chevy, (laughs) that have absolutely no bearing whatsoever on God's general will to save all people, and therefore it makes no difference. But other decisions... Such as, should I pursue this career or that career? Should I marry this person or that person? Can be examined from the perspective of God's general will. And then as a believer, you can ponder which choice will have the greatest impact on God's desire to save all people. Look, that's how wisdom and understanding work themselves out in our lives. It's not just a matter of getting more information, although it includes that. It's not as simple as following the Ten Commandments, although you should do that too. When you're filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, you are experiencing the real presence of God in your life. That is, being in a deep, personal, intimate relationship with Him so that you begin to examine and evaluate your life moment by moment from the perspective of the cross where you are redeemed. And forgiven. And from the empty tomb where eternal life starts again every single day. Now does that not sound amazing and profoundly satisfying? Why come back complacency? Because God has redeemed and forgiven you. What does it mean? It means being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, wouldn't it be nice to know how that becomes a reality in your everyday life? How do you combat complacency? Now, look, there are four things in these verses. 
bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, and giving thanks to the Father. You combat complacency, first of all, by bearing fruit in every good work. Now, here's the application of being filled with this knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Examine and evaluate the way that you're thinking, the way that you're acting, the way that you're speaking, your attitude, your body language, your tone of voice. And do so from the perspective of the cross where you are forgiven and from the empty tomb where you are resurrected to new life. A good work can be as simple as choosing not to react angrily, not to think evilly when you disagree with someone. A good work can be as small as an act of kindness to someone in need. Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Bear good fruit by developing a pattern of examining and evaluating your thoughts, your words, and your deeds from the perspective of the cross and the empty tomb. Secondly, combat complacency by increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, we've already talked about this, but let's try and make it perfectly practical. That if the knowledge of God is a deep, personal, intimate relationship with Him, then how do deep, personal, intimate relationships develop? Think about it in the context of choosing to spend a lifetime in a committed relationship of marriage. I mean, first, something attracts you to a certain person, and then you you start talking, you start sharing stories with one another, and soon you discover that there are things about yourself that that other person is not particularly impressed with, and you start to make a conscious effort to change, hoping that he or she won't give up on you in the meantime. And then at some point, you make a promise, you take a vow to be faithful even unto death. God makes his real presence available to you in his word. In all of its forms, the Bible, devotion books, study guides, sermons, even the little conversations that you have with other believers. God gives us his real presence every single time that you see, taste, touch, hear, or smell water and you remember that in your baptism you became supernaturally connected to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. The real presence of God is available to you in, with, and under the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper in which you receive the very body and blood of Jesus into your own physical body. The relationship that God wants and offers is deepened when he talks to you in his word and you talk to him in your prayers. Third, Combat complacency by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. 
The language here is simply breathtaking. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that this power given to us is the same power that God used to raise Jesus' dead body back to life. You have the power of the resurrection pulsing through your veins by faith, by believing that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, and that he's done what he claims to have done, that he's lived, he's died, he's risen again to forgive you and to restore you day after day. I chuckled this week when I read this comment. Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what they bring to show to an apparently impossible person. (laughs) Look, you combat complacency by knowing that you will be strengthened with miraculous resurrection power to face seemingly impossible situations and apparently impossible people with joy. Because you know what God is up to. You may not know how this particular episode in your life is going to turn out, but you know exactly how your story will end. From the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And finally, combat complacency by giving thanks to the Father. Now, I told you this last week, that the Greek word for giving thanks, oikaristeo, has right in the middle of it the Greek word for grace, charis. And grace is God's unlimited, unending love that wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Anne Voskamp has a little book entitled 1,000 Gifts in which she contends that every time that you pause to give thanks even for the smallest thing in your life, you open yourself for God to pour in more of His grace. It is an amazing insight. If you're looking for something to read And to ponder this summer, 1,000 gifts. The subtitle is A Dare to Live Fully Right Where You Are. I like that. Combating complacency. I dare you and me to live fully right where we are. Amen. Now the peace that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in this true faith unto life everlasting.